Let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 together. This is Paul's, um, Paul imploring how Timothy is supposed to handle Scripture. Here's what he says. Remind the church of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, which are to the ruin of those who hear them. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly interpreting the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for all they do is increase more ungodliness. Their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort. So Paul, he gives this command to Timothy to rightly interpret the Bible. And if there's a right way to interpret the Bible, that must mean that there's also a wrong way. If you can rightly interpret the Bible, there must also be a wrong way to interpret it. And if the Bible is the Word of God, and it is, then we should give the Bible and God the respect they deserve and make sure to carefully and rightly interpret the Bible. Have you ever had someone misconstrue your words? You say something, and then you'll hear them say it back, and they've put a completely different meaning to what you've said. It hurts, doesn't it? It's hurtful when someone misconstrues and twists your words, because they haven't taken you at your word. They haven't given you the benefit of the doubt, and they've put in their ideas and their perceptions into what you understood. And if we find that hurtful when people twist our words, we should... Be careful to give the same respect to God. We should be careful not to twist the words which God has given to us so that we don't, in the same way, hurt Him. Notice as well that Paul contrasts rightly interpreting the Bible with ungodly and idle babblings. And he says it's like a cancer. It spreads into the church and it kills it. Cancer is corrosive. It kills So having poor interpretations or incorrect interpretations of the Bible, Paul actually says it's like a cancer that spreads. It's unhealthy and it destroys the church. So not only is rightly interpreting the Bible a matter of giving God what he deserves, but it's also a matter of security and safety for the church. If we don't interpret it, we're actually at risk as well. So this morning, we're going to look at how do we make sure to read God's word the way that he intended it. And this morning we're going to do that simply by learning two new words. Maybe you've come across these words before, they're not new. Um, Perhaps they are completely new. They sound a bit scary, but they're not. They are very simple to understand. And here are the two words that we're going to learn uh, this morning. The first is exegesis, and the second is eisegesis. Now, they sound confronting because they're foreign, but they're ve- they have very simple meanings. Exegesis simply means to draw out from the text. Eisegesis means to put in to the text. So what do we mean by that? Well, to draw out from the text is to discover what did the author mean when they were writing this. And whenever we talk about the author of a Bible book, we're always talking about two. It'll be God and whoever the human author is. So it'll be Luke and God, or Paul and God, Moses and God. So what did God and Moses, God and Luke mean when they wrote these words? When they wrote them down, they clearly had 
or something they wanted to convey to us, the reader. And so to perform exegesis is to pull out from the text the meaning that the author intended. Uh, a, A handy acronym to remember this is AIM. Whenever we read a text in the Bible, we want to find out the AIM or the author's intended meaning. Here's, here's an example. My younger brother, Michael, he likes to play some video games on his Nintendo Wii. But he started playing them way too often. And so my dad said to him, Michael, when you come home from school, you're only allowed to play video games one or two days in the week. The rest you're not allowed. So one day I come back, you know, and one day I'm at home and Michael's come back from school and I find him playing games on his laptop. And I say to him, Michael, Dad, this is, this is one of your days you're not allowed to play video games. Dad said you're not allowed to play video games on this day. And Michael repeats back to me the words that he said. He said, Dad said I couldn't play video games. He didn't say I couldn't play computer games. So to him, video games just meant playing in, on his Nintendo Wii. So when Dad said no video games, it was only a ban on the Wii. It wasn't a ban on any games on his computer. Now, did Michael perform exegesis or eisegesis? Did he draw out from the did he draw out from Dad's words and understand what Dad meant? Or did he put into Dad's words what he thought he what he wanted? The last one. So he performed Eisegesis. He put into the text what he wanted to hear. He didn't. He knew what was the right way to interpret my dad's words, but he refused. He decided to put into my dad's words what he wanted to hear. Or he narrowed the equation. That's right. Um, here's another example. Uh, when I was probably in year seven or eight, a number of my friends we we did a naughty thing. We hid in the hedges out the front of school, which was a no-go zone. We got caught out. We got called out by a teacher. The teacher brings us out into his office. He gives us a good scolding. And then he finishes by saying this to us. He goes, boys, I trust that you all know the consequence of a repeat. And then he told us to go. And as I started thinking about the words in his head, I got really worried because I didn't know what he meant. Did he mean that if we repeated this crime, if we repeated going into the hedges, we knew what the punishment would be? Or was he trying to say that you know that the consequence if you do this again is you repeat, as in repeat a year in school? And I was torn between these two things. Which of these meanings did he, what what did he mean when he said this? Did he mean that we knew the consequence of a repeating offense or that a repeating offense would cause us to repeat a year of school. That, that worried me. You know, I'm thinking my whole life is going to be delayed a year because I went into these hedges, you know. And because of my fear, I interpreted it as if I did this again, I would have to repeat a year at school. Now, if we think about it rationally, was that what he meant? Clearly not. It's a pretty minor offense. So had I performed exegesis or eisegesis? Exegesis, draw out from the text. Eisegesis, putting in your own meaning. Which had I done with my teacher's words? Well, you were confused. I was confused, but 
I actually didn't in- properly interpret his words. He just meant, if you do it again, you know what will happen. You'll get in trouble. That would have been the right way to interpret it, to draw out from his words. But me and my fear, I put in what I thought, and my thought was completely wrong. So I hope that kind of simplifies it a bit. When we come to the Bible, which of these two do we want to perform? Do we want to draw out or put in? Exegesis. We want to draw out from the Bible what God has put in here. We want to read his words and discover what we can draw out from it. And actually, if you think about it, which of these two is the better? Us in our limited human understanding trying to put our own knowledge into the Bible or seeing the, what an infinite, eternal God has put into his own words. Man, that's a way better option than putting in our limited ideas into the Bible. So, as we said, exegesis is simply to draw out meaning from the text. And even if you don't remember these words, remember the principle to draw out from the Bible instead of put in what we want. So, to further reinforce this idea, let's look at some examples together. We're going to be a bit interactive here this morning and put into practice this these concepts and ideas. So let's have a look at Matthew 18, verse 20. Matthew 18, verse 20 says this, Where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, a common interpretation you hear of this verse is that no matter how small a worship gathering is, God is there. I'm sure we've all heard that used before. Is that what the text means? Well, basically, if you're there in God's name, True, but is, it, is the verse referring to church worship? Let's have a look in Matthew 18 together. Matthew chapter 18. And I want you to have a look, have a read of verse 20. Verse 20 is actually the last verse in a teaching Jesus gives. And he begins this teaching in verse 15. Uh, does anyone have a, a heading or a title above verse 15 in their Bibles. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, does anyone have a, a heading at all? <laughs> Matthew chapter 18. Yeah, who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? True greatness, one. If you come all the way down to verse 15, do you have another title? Uh, Ah. Yeah, dealing with a sinning brother or dealing with a brother who sins. So this is what the teaching Jesus is talking about. So he says, if a brother sins against you, this is someone in the church, uh, and you have a fault between him, go up to the person and you discuss things out together. Don't, Don't gossip, don't take it to other people. If if someone does something against you, speak with them. And then it continues to say, if they don't hear you out, well then take an elder or the pastor from the church and go together. And um, if that doesn't work, then you have to take more, you know, harsher, well not harsher, but more disciplinary actions. And then Jesus concludes by saying that in the context of this, dealing with a sinning brother, 
Again, I say to you that if two agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So what are the people gathering for? Are they gathering for church worship on a Sabbath? They're gathering together to talk about conflict that they have with each other. This verse is actually Jesus saying that whenever people in the church are coming together to sort out their disagreements, he is going to be there in their presence to sort out the conflict. That when someone goes to the other person or when someone brings an elder of the church to sort out a conflict that needs to be resolved, that God is going to be there in their midst. No mention of church worship. Now, is it true that God is wherever two or three people are when they worship? Of course it is. But the text that we use to often justify that... It's a bit misquoted. Bit misquoted. So, maybe this looks a bit better. The verse and the interpretation, or we'll say the aim. We found out the aim of this text, the author's intended meaning, was God is present when two or more conflicting Christians... Come to resolve church issues. This is the context uh, in which this is being spoken. Let's have a look at one more example. I'm sure we've all heard this one before. Matthew 7, 1, the verse is, Judge not that you be not judged. And the interpretation we always hear is, Christians are never to judge anyone ever. Well, is that the correct... Yeah, let's, let's go to Matthew 7. As, as we'll find out, the key to understanding all of this has to do with context. Um, a really good principle for reading the Bible is never read a Bible verse. People can, do, people can misconstrue a Bible verse. It's very difficult to misconstrue a Bible passage. Um, always read a, a verse in context in the passage. Yes, that's right. So Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with that judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, there's a plank in yours? Hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So, isn't it interesting? Jesus doesn't say, never, ever, ever judge. He says, don't be a hypocrite in your judgment. Don't go up to someone and point out a failing of theirs when yours is equal to, if not worse. You know, that's being hypocritical. And also, the air... Of judgment that Jesus is referring to here is one of self-righteousness. It's you're up on a pedestal, you're on your moral high horse, and you're you know you're pointing out every wrong thing someone does because you're this the best of the best. <clears throat> Jesus says, "Don't be hypocritical in your judgment. Take out the plank from your eye, and then you can take out the speck in someone else's." So God, act- Jesus actually says, "There's you 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 can righteously judge." But before that, you have to reflect on your personal life first. So there's actually a process to which you reach righteous judgment. But first you have to 
reflect on yourself. And if you reflect on your own personal life, well, you, you shouldn't be self-righteous. And in fact, if we just go back to Matthew 18, Matthew 18, the passage we just read, is a whole passage on how to deal with moral failings in the church, how to righteously judge. So Jesus gives us a method of how to righteously judge. So perhaps this is a better interpretation. This would be the aim. Which, oh, I, sorry, the, the verse is incorrect. Judge not lest ye be judged. The interpretation or aim would be Christians are not to be self-righteous or hypocritical, but be gracious in their judgment. There's also, that's also the element, is that Jesus says if you harshly judge someone, he'll use the same measure or standard to judge you. Rightly so, that's fair. So if we want to judge others, we shouldn't have this high, high moral bar. We should be gracious in the way that we judge people. You know, look at the example of Jesus. Jesus saw people with moral failings all the time. But he was gracious in their judgment and he gently pointed them forward to a better path. So it's very, just through these two examples, we can see how important it is to make sure we read things in its proper context and find out what the author actually meant when they, when they wrote what they said. Because again, when we incorrectly read these words, they can be twisted and misconstrued to mean all sorts of things. Let's do one final example together, and this will be our final text for this morning. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. This is Jesus very, very early on in his public ministry. He's just begun. His, he's been tempted in the wilderness. He's done a bit of preaching around Galilee. And now he's returned back home to Nazareth, where he grew up. It's his hometown, his home turf. And um, we're going to... See, we're going to make sure we draw out from the text what Luke intends. But this story is also interesting because it's an example of what we've been learning about this morning. So let's begin in verse 16 of Luke chapter 4. So Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book, he found the place to which it was written. And here's the passage of Isaiah that Jesus reads out. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then Jesus closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed onto him. So the people are impressed by this reading that Jesus has given. Jesus has been, he's preached it in such a way that all eyes are on him. They're enamored by this reading of Isaiah that Jesus has given. And rightly so. What a beautiful promise this is that the Messiah would come to do all of these beautiful, beautiful things. Preach the gospel, heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty. Beautiful promises. And it's interesting. Luke is the only one who tells us what Jesus read out. 
The other Gospels tell us about this story, but they just they don't actually tell you what Jesus read out. But Luke, is he makes sure to tell you that Jesus reads out this passage of Isaiah in which Jesus is um, helping the lowly, the poor, the oppressed, the blind. Luke is very concerned with Jesus taking care of those who are lowly. Now, let's see. Jesus is now about to perform exegesis. He's, he's read out the text. He's read out the word of God. And now he's going to draw out the meaning of what Isaiah was saying. What was Isaiah trying to say? Jesus is going to interpret it for us. In verse 21, Jesus, it says, And Jesus began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him. They marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth, but they said, Is this not the son of Joseph? So Jesus gives an interpretation for Isaiah's passage, and he says, This anointed one who's going to do all these things, that's me. I'm the Messiah. And as I've read out the scroll of Isaiah to you this morning, you have seen it fulfilled in me. So Jesus has drawn out the meaning that Isaiah had in this text. Isaiah what? Uh, we'll, we'll get to Isaiah in just a moment. But we're in Luke chapter 4. Um, now, do the people like what Jesus has to say? <laughs> they don't like his interpretation. And so what they decide to do is put in their own interpretation into the text. I mean, God himself has just told you what he meant when he wrote these words in Isaiah. And the people, they don't like this interpretation. It's too confronting. Even though it's true, it's too confronting. So rather than accept that, they decide to put into the text what they want to hear. They do eisegesis. They put their own thoughts and beliefs in. And they say, look, how can Jesus be the Messiah that Isaiah spoke of when he's just Joseph the carpenter's son? We've seen him, you know, when he was this small. How can this guy be the Messiah? Well, Jesus, he's able to understand, you know, he's able to read the thoughts of the people. And so he says something very interesting in verse 24. Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent, except to the widow in Zarephath, in the region of Zion. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. And yet none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. This is very interesting that Jesus says this. Why would he reference to the people that God in the Old Testament had blessed the Gentiles rather than his people at some times? Well, if we turn to Isaiah 61... Isaiah chapter 61, we can read the quote, we can read the passage that Jesus read out into the synagogue and see if you can pick up the difference that Jesus does. Jesus actually doesn't read out the entire passage. Isaiah 61 verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has appointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. 
to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And that's where Jesus stops. If you read Luke, Jesus stops right here. What's the next, what is the next sentence that Jesus doesn't read out? And the day of the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus doesn't read out the part that refers to God's judgment. Now, specifically, it refers to judgment on the Gentiles. So they're looking forward to the Messiah who's going to usher in a golden age for Israel and all the non-Jews, all the Gentiles will be destroyed in the day of vengeance. Yeah, no verses too. <laughs> so Jesus stops mid-sentence and he just says, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And all of the, his Jewish audience they're waiting for, and the day of vengeance. But Jesus stops. He doesn't read the last part of the sentence. Jesus' ministry on earth was not judgment or vengeance. At his first coming, it was all about proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord. The day of vengeance doesn't come till his second coming. But for now, Jesus stops. Because his ministry here, the first time, is not about judgment. It's about the year of the Lord, proclaiming liberty and freedom. And so all the hearers, they're, they're waiting to hear Jesus say the part where God comes and smashes the Gentiles. Jesus doesn't read it, and then he rubs salt on their wound by saying, you know, prophets have never been accepted in their hometown. When Elijah was a prophet to the Israelites, none of the Israelites listened to Elijah except for a, a Syrian woman, a Gentile. And he says there were heaps of people who were lepers during the time of the prophet Elisha. And yet not one Israelite was ever healed. Only Naaman, who was a Gentile. And so Jesus is exposing to the people that they're doing the same thing. Jesus has come to his hometown as a prophet. And they're rejecting him. Just like Elijah was ejected. Just like Elisha was ejected. Now Jesus is being rejected. And Jesus is saying, just like the Jews, the ancient Israelites, missed out on God's blessings back then you're going to miss out on it as well. And if you miss out on it, guess who the blessings are going to go to? The Gentiles. Man, that would have made them mad. They want to see the Gentiles destroyed. And Jesus says, it'll be the Gentiles who receive the blessing because they're the ones who actually have faith in God. They're the ones willing to listen to what God has to say. The people are so mad at Jesus' interpretation of Isaiah, that they try and murder him. Verse 28, so all of those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. Man, that, I'd feel pretty uncomfortable if I walked out of church and everyone was just mad at me <laughs> for what I preached. Now I'm getting daggers in my eyes. That, that's scary. Jesus manages to make the entire synagogue mad with him. And they're so mad that it says they rose up, they thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of a hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him over a cliff. But God protects Jesus, and Jesus, he simply walks through the midst of him, and he goes through the midst of the mob, and he goes his own way. It's as if they can't see him. God protects Jesus from being killed. That's how hard these people's hearts were to hearing 
the word of God actually rightly interpreted. That they wanted to murder and kill Jesus and they, were, they missed out on the blessings that Jesus was willing to give them. I think there's a lesson for us to learn in there, in this passage. That if we become, if our hearts are so hardened to being convicted by God's word and the right interpretation of it, we're going to miss out on the blessings that God has in store for us. So we've read this passage. What is it now that Luke, the author, is trying to convey to us? What is Luke's aim in this passage? What is his intended meaning? Um, Here's what I would say. The first thing he's trying to prove to us is that Jesus is the Messiah. He points towards Isaiah and he, he explicitly puts in the text from Isaiah to convey to us that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that the Old Testament promised of. Secondly, Luke wants to tell us in the story, all are welcome to receive God's blessings. There's no barriers to who can be in and out of this covenant. The Gentiles all the way back in the Old Testament who were willing to worship God, they were brought in. And it was no different during the time of Jesus. And it's no different today. And thirdly, don't harden your heart as judgment is coming. Jesus didn't bring judgment the first time he came. But the second time he comes, he will have to bring judgment. And so we need to be sure that our hearts are ready for his second arrival. We've, we, if we accept the blessings of his first coming, we'll be prepared for his second. All of us at times have experienced brokenheartedness and being poor in spirit, as Luke says here. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and sent me to heal the brokenhearted. There are always things precious to us that are unfairly and unjustly taken from us. Loved ones, a spouse, a parent, a child, a sibling, they go and Accidents, sickness, old age, COVID. And whenever these loved ones are taken from us, we know it's not natural. Human beings are not wired to see death as natural. God did not build us to desire or think that death was natural. And so when they're unjustly taken from us, we recognize that this feels unnatural. But we also can have hope. That for those who died in Christ, we will see them again because of the resurrection of Jesus. It's true as well that even our belongings can be precious. And that's not a sense of of worldliness or, or greed. But when people lose their entire homes and everything they have in fires and floods and natural disasters, that's devastating. It breaks our hearts. Or when we lose autonomy over even ourselves. When perhaps old age or sickness begin to take away the things that we used to be able to do. And we're we're no longer able to do those things. They've been unjustly ripped away from us, taken away. We know that that doesn't feel right. And yet we have the hope that one day we'll be raised again with perfect and glorified bodies. The poor and broken can take comfort in knowing that Jesus heals broken hearts and spirits. And Jesus spent a great deal of his ministry healing people to show the ability he has, the power he has 
to heal any type of problem that we have. Jesus says that he brings recovery of sight to the blind. All of us at some stage have been blinded by sin. And the problem with being blind is you can't heal yourself. You're not able to see things for yourself. Jesus, however, is able to bring spiritual sight to us, to see the truth of his love and salvation, and to see the evilness of sin that binds us. And even when we've been brought into spiritual light, we often have spiritual blind spots, areas in our life where we're still sitting, areas in which we're still growing. And if it's a blind spot, the idea of a blind spot is you can't see it. God has to be the one to reveal to us where these blind spots are so that we can continue to grow in our spiritual journey. And finally, Jesus says he has come to proclaim liberty to the captives and the oppressed. We've all been oppressed as captives to sin, but Jesus gives us liberty and freedom. The recurring ideas in this passage of Isaiah is that Jesus brings hope and he brings freedom. And it's just such a powerful message to us here. Jesus brings hope and Jesus brings freedom. So as you open up your Bible, the next time you go to read it, open it with the intention of finding out what God wants to say to you. Don't put your ideas into the text. Don't put your thoughts, your theories, your preconceptions into what the the Bible says. But draw out from it the rich treasures which God has placed into every word on every page. And if you do, you will begin to see the God of hope and freedom in every single letter of the Bible. God wants to make those blessings of freedom and hope a reality in your life today. So what would stop you from accepting those blessings? If there is sin in your life that you treasure more than God, Jesus wants to show us that that sin is blindness, it's oppression, it's captivity. And Satan pretends that he can offer something good, and sin usually feels good in the moment, and then as soon as it's done, we realize that we have chains around us. We've become enslaved and we're in bondage to him. But Jesus says that he has come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And proclaim liberty to the captives. He can provide us freedom from sin. Do you carry grief or pain that you believe that God cannot bear? God invites you to try him and see if he can't. If we think about Jesus on the cross, Jesus is bearing the guilt of the sin of every single person who will ever live in human history. And he was able to bear that. And then he died. If we think about the scope and the magnitude of that burden that was placed on Jesus, and then we just think of the grief and the pain in our life, in one single human life, in contrast with all human lives in history that Jesus at one point bared, how can we burden Jesus? How is it that just our individual life could be a burden to him? He can carry so much of the pain and the grief that we bear, and he wants to take it from us. He wants to take away the guilt, the grief, the pain, the brokenheartedness and place it on himself so that you can live in peace and hope and freedom. Don't doubt that God will follow through with what he said. When God makes a promise, 
it always comes true. God promised through Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus ever came that the Messiah would come. And as Jesus reads out the scroll, he says, the very thing that Isaiah prophesied 400 years ago, you have seen fulfilled in your hearing today. If you choose to invite Jesus to do this in your life today, then in the words of Jesus, today this scripture will be fulfilled in your hearing. This very day in Canamble Church, the brokenhearted can be healed. The spiritually blind can be made to see. And the captives of sin can be released. I hope that you will make that decision today.